and it's your boys, Roshan Gomez, Jeremy Lim. And today we have someone uh, very familiar to the house. Uh, he's been a patron here for many years. And we're very excited to have him here. The one, the only, the legend, Mr. Christian Gomez. I think patron is a bit underestimated. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing that I've lived here <laughs> for... My housemate, my roommate. <laughs> and has done chores in this house. <laughs> Contribute significantly in the mess. One's bedmate. Yes, one's bunk, bedmate. Bunkmate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We slept uh, same room for... Just to pre preface, we are brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, this will have no context. <laughs> it's it's going to be titled Christian Gomez. La, so okay, I think people good. are going to draw <laughs> the proper inferences. So yeah, how do you feel? It's good. Um, I've not been home for a while. Been away. Mm. So... Uh, let me just start by saying that, you know, I'm really glad this… <laughs> this sounds like he's super scared. <laughs> like we forced him on. Like, let me just tell you guys, okay? <laughs> There's no coercion. <laughs> my opinions are my own. Uh, no, I'm really glad that this has started. Yeah. Because uh, I've lived away for a while now. Mm. And uh, growing up with my brother, we used to always have like lots of discussions. And in those conversations, I would… He would be my source of random information that… I probably never would need. <laughs> and he's still the source of that kind of information. I hope that's um, more informative because Samuel's information is not <laughs> informative. No, it's along those lines like, you know, um, Star Wars dogma, oh. Marvel dogma. So not informative then. Yeah, not at all. But uh, besides him, no one else talks to me about those things. So I'm, I'm glad this channel's up and I'm receiving all that bits of information that I would rarely ever get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had um, Jeremy's brother <laughs> on. And so, uh, and Jeremy was on BFM. So I, I, I no, sorry, Samuel. Samuel was on BFM. So I remember when Samuel, uh, his episode came out, like uh, Jeremy put up Samuel's uh, um, pod, uh, like BFM podcasting on our friend's WhatsApp group, you know, like he's so proud, as a proud brother. Yeah. Then just a few months after that, you went on BFM. Do you remember? Yeah. You did that interview thing. So then yeah. I put it up in our friends group yeah. just to challenge Jeremy, put him, throw him off his high horse. <laughs> I didn't even think much of it. I posted it and just left it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People yeah. enjoy Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeremy, any, uh, I don't know, preliminary introduction kind of stuff you want to ask Christian or do you want to Clarify anything or no? No. I mean, maybe talk about talk a bit about your experience, like uh, I mean, traveling from back from the US in the middle of all this, la. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you you basically came back to Malaysia from America where you did an internship. I mean, we're gonna talk about all that, but yeah. just from just the process of you coming back with the whole COVID thing. Yeah. No, I think um, I mean I think Malaysian government needs a lot of affirmation mm. and. Big congratulations to like the team that handles all of us at the airport because I I don't think it's a small task to like deal with an entire plane of people who have to go through the whole pr process of getting registered and tested and then you know all the results come out within a matter of hours and then being released out of immigration. It's hard work and a lot of them do do it with quite a with good cheer and a smile. And honestly, after being away for a while, like. I I was excited to be back to the Malaysian cynicism and the <laughs> sarcasm and the, the jilling, you know, the eyes just rolling around everywhere when someone says something. I miss those quirks and it becomes very evident to you the moment you reach the airport because a lot of the first responders have all these quirks as well. Mm. So, so, Americans are overly nice. Uh, very affirming. 
Yeah, I, I would say like on the surface, a lot of Americans are generally extremely polite. It's hard to read an American actually, I think. I found that to be my experience. Like, mm. It's hard to really tell what they're feeling or thinking about a lot of things. Um, because I think they're taught from a very young age that you should always put forward your best. Yeah. So you'll find lots of courtesy everywhere you go and people being smiley and polite. Um, but where did you get the sense that that wasn't the case? I think because I made a few good American friends and then I lived with them mm. and realized that, you know, when they say they're feeling good, they don't always actually feel uh, good. Mm. Okay. Or when they smile at you, they don't actually feel happy. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think just learning to dig deeper. And yeah. When I was studying in the UK, that's another a similar um, experience struck me in that uh, English people were extremely polite. Extremely nice. And I, I don't know why, but I found it like quite surprising. <laughs> I, I guess you really don't know your culture until you experience another type of culture. Mm. And then you come back and then you realize like, oh yeah, this is like, okay, I feel it lah. <laughs> you know, I feel the Malaysianness. Yeah. So, one of my favorite things, because I'm a, I guess, I, I, won't, I don't know whether I can say I'm an int- Well, I'm definitely, um, o- I'm okay talking to people. Uh, I have a friendly disposition. But me meeting people for the first time is always like, a horrible experience <laughs> for me. I really dread it to know. Anxiety ridden. <laughs> not anxiety ridden, but just like, oh, I really wish I, I, don't, I wouldn't have to do this, you <laughs> okay. know. It's awkward and it's like weird. So, but one technique that I apply now is bringing up siblings. Because then they'll ask me, oh, do you have a sibling? And I'll be like, yeah, my, I have a brother, younger brother, Christian. Oh, what does he do? I didn't know this. <laughs> what does he do? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he does conservation. Wow, so interesting. And that's just like 20 minutes of me talking about <laughs> <laughs> conservation in Malaysia. So you. it's a really good icebreaker. <laughs> I think that's been the case with many people. Like they have one token friend who's doing this weird thing to talk about. Yeah. And I'm happy to be that one weird friend to anyone. <laughs> because you've, you've gone into a career that um, not many mm. have uh, explored. Yeah. And uh, it's considered quite unique. So, I think it's exciting for some people because like, I think, yeah, people do think, I think there's some people who like animals and think that, you know, being a zookeeper is like a great job. Like, yeah. people have that kind of imagery when it comes yeah. to conservation also, I think. Yeah. I distinctly remember you crying when you watched that Scarlett Johansson movie. What was it? The Farm? Uh, <laughs> we... We bought a zoo. We bought a zoo. That was that's probably one of the best movies of all time. We bought a zoo. It was amazing. Who's, who's the male lead? Is that a Matt Damon? Or? Yeah, I oh, think it's Matt, it's Matt Damon. Damon. Okay, yeah. that's the one. Some, yeah. I have a feeling that that was the originator. Maybe. Maybe. Dang, that was a good movie. Honestly, I'm not a cry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a cry. I don't no, cry. No, you're not even a movie person. Yeah, I'm not, I, yeah, I fall asleep in like 80% of things I watch. Like, I've had to watch Avengers three times to wow. finish the movie. Yeah, he's really bad. Because I he's sleep really, really, bad. Like, really quick. Damn. Um, <laughs> so we bought a zoo. I've watched <laughs> the movie three times just because I like it and I stayed awake in all three uh, runs. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, movie review, uh, movie recommendation by... Yeah, <laughs> if you've not watched it. Another one that I really liked actually, I, I, I always talk about only two movies that I think just move me. Don't say David Attenborough or something. No, it's um, <laughs> The movie. Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, yeah, I really yeah, like that movie. That, uh, what's the... Uh, ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. That's yeah. one of my top movies as well. It didn't, get, it didn't get great reviews, mm. but I really enjoyed it. 
just quickly, like 30 seconds, what's the premise? So, he's uh, he works for a magazine and the magazine is going Life, print. Life magazine. Life magazine is going digital. And the guy works for, he works for the department that receives photos. It's like a Nat Geo kind of magazine. Mm. So, he receives photos from wildlife photographers around the world. And the context is like, he loses the film of a photo that's been sent by a photographer. Mm. And he, he has a note from that photographer saying like, come and find me in this place. And it happens to be this place in Greenland or something. Because this person is a, like a real adventurer. He's always living life wild. to the fullest. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, this guy goes on a search to find, to track down this wildlife photographer in this remote part of Greenland, who, you know, when he's doing his job. And that adventure takes him on a life-changing experience mm. of, of going out of his shell because he's just really like a creature of habit. He's very steady. You know, he's always doing the same thing every day. And he has a lot of imaginations. Yeah. So if you remember properly, there are a lot of like cutaways, thing, cutaways that play, yeah. but it's not real. Oh. But as the movie, it's just like, you know, fantasy is lah. Mm. But as the movie uh, pro, uh, progresses, progresses uh, the daydreams lessen. Because he's really Reality living life. Reality uh. becomes more adventurous. Mm. Yeah. His daydreams was his adventure mm. because of the boringness of his life. Mm. Anyway, that was a bit too much for a summary. No, right. that's fine. Yeah. It was a good movie. So, okay, but I think for the benefit of everyone, when you say you're a conserva- conservationist, yeah. what does that mean? Uh, I think it can mean a lot of things. I think, in my opinion, everyone should be a conservationist mm. in his own right. Um, so I, I I use the term very loosely. I don't I don't necessarily say it in an exclusive sense when I tell people I am a conservationist, in the sense that only I am and you are not. Um, it's just that I've made it kind of a profession, mm. and I get paid to do the work related to it. Uh, but what it means when I say I'm a conservationist is that is that I'm working every day, doing something that is going to in some way prolong our prolong our earth for just a little bit longer. Wow. Big mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> in some way. Some very small, minuscule way, but in some way. So, maybe quickly, how how, how does your story go? How how did this all start? Um, Shall I start with where I am now? Sure. And then we can move backwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, right now, I think, yeah. So, right now, I work in a project based in Sabah, in Borneo called the Bornean Carnivore Program. Mm. So it's a research group um, that started uh, in Oxford University and is still based in Oxford University. But there's a team in Sabah that's been studying Bornean carnivores for the last 10 plus years. So by studying, I mean like collecting scientific data and mm. like, you know, how many of these carnivores are there. And by carnivores, I mean like the whole family of well, you know, clouded leopard and civets, all the cats, the mm. bear, everything. So, just for context, yeah. if you watch Tiger King, <laughs> yeah. the first episode starts out with them looking at a clouded leopard. Yeah. Oh. Right. And right. from that clouded leopard, then the whole story… Yeah, the guy just comes, comes out in a van and he says, Oh, I got a clouded leopard in the van. Yeah. And he opens the van and you see a clouded leopard mm. in there. Yeah. So, that's that, That's how it… Yeah. yeah. So, the clouded leopard is the apex predator on Borneo. So, it's the big guy. You know, there's there's no tiger. There's no lion. There's just the clouded leopard. Uh, so, that's kind of the top carnivore in, in the island. And then… But we study all of them. Uh, but the clouded leopard is a great flagship species. Mm. Like… Just like how the orangutan is a flagship for a lot of conservation groups. Mm. Because it 
you know kind of resonates with people people can relate to it and they they lean towards towards it uh so the cloud leopard is kind of like that hmm. so um but you study things equally or is there you're focusing on a particular yeah sadly conservation is also driven by economics yeah so we get funding more to study some things other than than others mm. so because the cloud leopards are flagship we tend to focus a lot on that mm-hmm. but not just because there's money in it but because there's really not a lot being done mm. and also because um there is this concept of ecosystem services and keystone species so one some species bo- being more important than others mm-hmm. now this is going to upset some animal welfare people mm. but i mean that's the truth that you know in a food chain mm. some animals bear more weight than others mm-hmm. and what's been established for a long time is predators the big guys mm-hmm. the big guys mm. play a really big role mm-hmm. so invariably we focus on the people who play a big role mm. and that is the clouded leopard so one thing that i found out I mean through his uh journey uh is that with the clouded leopard for example um how unstudied it is yeah it's pretty crazy like we have this perception that we know everything in the world like you can just google something and you'll find out yeah. but then when it comes to like the sunda clouded leopard for example yeah they don't know the numbers yeah they don't even know where it is in terms of it being endangered mm. or close to extinction yeah. or, or whatever so just to put in context like the work you know the first thing you ask when you think about the conservation of a species is and everyone asks me that which is oh how many are there in the wild mm. right and it kind of seems like a no brainer question right and i thought so too mm. but the work involved to answering that one question has taken the bulk of 10 years of one person's life you know just just intensively putting out cameras to study these jungles and counting them mm. um had he not done that the person i work with now we would have no answer to how many are there in the wild and in fact the number keeps revising like the tigers recently the malayan tigers recently the number came out last year that there was 200 left in the wild mm. and it's not because they haven't been studying them but because more novel techniques have been used that are more accurate so th- so it never really stops mm. so even the question of how many are there is one extremely broad question that is constantly like people are making better and better guesses at it all the time and i guess things also changes yeah you know new environmental issues factors yeah. and yeah. we have um, a big problem in our house <laughs> the direct enemies of rumah roy uh you should know um because right opposite our house is a jungle yeah mm. and we have what we call i can only describe them as a a clan <laughs> A, gang, a tribe, a, mob. a tribe, <laughs> okay. well, hoodlums <laughs> of monkeys. Yeah, that we uh, it's war lah at this point. They've yeah. uh, attacked our roof. <laughs> <laughs> They've broken tiles. Yo, we needed to barb wire our astro dish. Oh wow! Because they kept on attacking it. Yeah, and you, if you, if you piss them off, they will target your house, <laughs> right? And so we've been we. It came to a point where we bought a machine. that supposedly emitted a frequency 
Yeah. Uh, that would deter them. A radio wave. That just made them mad more than anything else. <laughs> I don't know if that was based on any founded science. I've not heard of any radio wave that deters monkeys. Well, I think it's pretty scientific because they had, it was a box. Yeah. They had a knob yeah. and they had pictures of different animals. <laughs> <laughs> they had monkey. So, they had dog. this is what happened. <laughs> My mom told me that you guys put it on the monkey knob yeah. and she said the ants in the house yeah. went crazy. <laughs> That's true. So, it's either the knobs <laughs> were mislabeled or this is unfounded <laughs> I would go for the latter. <laughs> yeah, me too. So now, and they've become more emboldened. So now we're thinking, okay, maybe we should invest in like a high pressure water gun. Like, you know, there's car wash. Uh, That's going to piss them off even more though. <laughs> That's true. Something needs to be done, man. And so I was, we were talking and he just told me, Christian just told me, that apparently the state, is it? No, the globe. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Why? Right? They put these... <laughs> Hoodlums, <laughs> these 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 naysayers. I mean, they're not naysayers. These bad <laughs> creatures on the endangered list. Okay. Oh. <laughs> not endangered. Okay. So you can't spray so them anymore. The IUCN uh, is the body that kind of determines whether an animal is where it is on the spectrum. Is it least concerned, vulnerable, near mm-hmm. endangered, extinct? You know, put it classifies them. And the IUCN recently raised. <laughs> These long-tail macaques is what they're called, um, from least concern to vulnerable. Vulnerable is like three or four steps from endangered. Yeah, long-tail demons is what they. Are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long-tail macaques are interesting species because they do particularly well where humans are. Mm-hmm. They would never survive in the wild. There are very few of them in the wild. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go to TTDI Park, mm. you see like a whole Batu caves? a lot of them. Yeah, in Batu Caves as well. But the ones in TTDI Park are quite nice. Like you can jog among them. You know, they, they've they don't been really well fed, haven't they? Mm. <laughs> Probably. Batu Caves, the monkeys are mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are the, crazy. The, you know, the monkeys in Batu Caves have learned that... So you know how they used to steal food from you, right? Mm. Uh, that's, that's like a classic. But the newer, younger ones have learned that food is not as valuable to humans as mobile devices are. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they learned this because... They probably accidentally stole it once and the reaction they got was so mm. outrageous. They were like, oh, this matters. This square black <laughs> device matters. <laughs> so they started stealing phones instead. They don't take food anymore. <laughs> and now when they steal the phone, they then initiate a butter. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. I'll but give them keep... money. They can't do anything with it. it. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah, they take a phone and then you have to give them any, everything they want. <laughs> And you will. That's crazy. <laughs> I was just, I went for lunch with a friend and my friend was telling me, because she came to pick, uh, she came because she came, parked the car here and then we drove together and she was really shocked by the amount of monkeys because yeah. she stays in Sungai Bulo but she stays in the more posh area of Sungai Bulo. Yeah. So she came here and was like, I'm never buying a property. In this <laughs> she was so scared and then she was telling me that one time she went to Langkawi or somewhere and she was at the beach and then this monkey, she could see a monkey coming towards her and then she had some food on her so she just threw the food lah because she was really scared and she thought the monkey would go for the food. The monkey came up to her, grabbed a bottle of water, <laughs> went away, opened the bottle and drank it in front of her. Wow. <laughs> that is impressive. <laughs> That's really impressive. That's, what kind of monkey needs to drink bottled water? <laughs> I think your friend is just receiving punishment of some <laughs> evil thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, it is a bit 
interesting la, when it comes to Yeah, I mean all of these these questions of how animals and humans are interacting mm. is a principal question of ecology. Yeah. And that's why I love it because humans are, you know, we're calling this epoch the yeah. Anthropocene, right? Yeah. Humans are the biggest ecological and geological force that is present today. And we are we like to think of us being separate from the ecosystem. Yeah. But we are very much part of it. it. Yeah. Mm. But I think what separates us from kind of prehistoric men mm. is that we have learned to adapt nature to us. We have learned to manipulate nature. You know, well, we've learned, I think short of the weather, which we have no control of it at all. But no, I think... But some would argue like cloud seeding is kind of manipulation of weather. Way. But we have, you know, for a species, we have pretty good control of our nature. Yeah. And COVID is an example of nature being out of our control. Mm. Um, the bushfires. Bushfires, yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that is probably the problem that we have become so adept to changing environments around us to suit us that we're making a world. Essentially, we're building a cage for humans that is just unsustainable for anything else. Mm. Not even not even sustainable for human beings and the animals. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, depends. I think city folk. Urban folk um, are perfectly adept to living in cities. Mm. But I think we forget that cities depend on these rural areas feeding into the cities mm. and resources that come from these rural areas. Mm. Yeah. So, okay, how did you get into... Was this a... Because growing up with you, I can attest that this was not your interest from a young age. Yeah. This was something that came out of nowhere. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> random. Yeah, a lot of my friends uh, <laughs> are shocked with the past. So I grew up in like a city. I'm a city boy. Mm. Um, in every right. You know, I, I take the train everywhere. I drive everywhere. I, yeah, I mean, Even we... bicycle we, use was limited. But we did have a, a kampong kind of... Yeah, we had some attachment to that. But, you know, hiking was not part of the regular agenda. I think the most kind of... Out, I, 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 I always had a love for the outdoors. And that kind of fueled my passion for running. So I guess that was kind of the initial spark. Um, but I think it was university. So I did I did uni in um, this really funny university in Sarawak. Unimas. It's Unimas, please sponsor us. We have your <laughs> alum here. Yeah. Christian Gomez. Proud yeah. alum. Uh, Unimas, the best local university in Malaysia. I don't think universities do this kind of thing. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But yeah, I studied in Sarawak, in University Malaysia Sarawak. Mm. Um, I didn't, I wasn't particularly enthused about going there. But um, I guess I guess this fate has a funny way of playing out. You know, it became a really rich experience for me because it was in Sarawak. My campus was surrounded by forest. I did a biotechnology, which was heavily kind of biology and genetics and molecular biology. But there was also it was also peppered with courses like natural resource management, um, field biology, animal physiology that took mm-hmm. us out into the forest. And we had to like observe and do kind of field experiments. Uh, and that just blew me away. Um, it, it, it occurred to me that a, per- a person can be involved in protecting the planet. And just, you know, it's outlandish and it's big, you know, like I want to protect the planet. I want to conserve the planet. It sounds like a childhood dream, but it became tangible and observable to me in university. And then once I saw that, I think I couldn't let it go anymore. Hmm. Um, 
but I knew I had other passions as well. You know, I liked genetics a bit more than I did just the natural world. Uh, so I knew I wanted to be involved in kind of the hard... Uh, science. You know, forward science, the, the front end of the science. Uh, so molecular biology was a big interest of mine. And I wanted to just bring it together somehow. And then I realized that people were using genetics to solve conservation problems. Hmm. Um, ecology was moving towards using genetic tools to find answers because the traditional means was becoming limiting already. You know, there's only so much that your eyes can see and only so long you can spend in a forest and so far you can go in a forest. So that intrigued me. And then once I, once I saw all those things and those things lined up for me and I saw the possibilities of what I could do, I just hung on to it. And I think I waited for the right opportunity and the opportunity came and I grabbed it. And yeah, I've been living in the forest ever since. <laughs> so you you did Unimas, biotech, yeah. graduated, yeah. Uh, got this job in uh, Sabah. Well, I did, a, I did a year of working in KL in a social enterprise. Yeah. Um, but that was really a, 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 a stop gap yeah. just for me to find the right opportunity. Mm. Uh, I think many people who have a passion in conservation can attest that there aren't many opportunities available. And, you know, it's not instantly Googleable. You can't just <laughs> type it and you, you will not find something immediately. So I had to wait and, you know, something came up and I took it. So you're, from there, you went to Sabah. Yeah. And now you're in this jungle, yeah. uh, random, lo um, isolated location. Yeah. Uh, what were the biggest shocks culture shocks? Uh, what were the biggest uh, things that you had to adapt to? Or was it a seamless? I w the thing is, I wouldn't call it a shock because I think I anticipated it. Okay. And also, I wouldn't say it was seamless because, you know, I'm a city boy and mm. there would be a lot of things to adjust to. Like, you know, we were doing daily 10-kilometer hikes <sighs> up mountains. Mm. And tracking rivers. You know, those were things that I had never done. Not as a child, not as a teenager, nor in my adulthood. So You, you tell this pretty uh, crazy story about you and your boss and the river. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I nearly, yeah, we were tracking a river and I, I literally saw my boss get swept away by a river and taken downstream. You know, like those movies where the rapids carry the person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so my boss got carried. Just like that. And the fun, I mean, funny, but not funny at all, <laughs> was he? I, his, his partner at the time had come down to visit him and he had proposed to her, I think, two days before that. And so, you know, the moment I saw him swept away and you he went he, out of sight, was I was like, how am I going to explain to his fiance? Basically, you you already had for expected his death. La. Yeah, I was preparing <laughs> his eulogy. How was I going to tell his partner how he got swept away? And yeah. no, but how did that happen? Like, was it just a misstep or the waters just came? So basically, I think we miscalculated the, the river. Uh, okay. it, was, it was naive of us mm. to even try to cross it. Um, what happened was there was a... We, we crossed the river first, went and did our hike. And then along our hike, like heavy rain and all the rain just, just gushed into the river and the river expanded by threefold, I think. And... It got a lot deeper than we thought it was initially. Mm. So we walked through it and then I think we were already like in the middle of the river and then we realized that the sand that we were standing on was moving itself. Oh boy. <laughs> so like even your feet is not planted on the ground. Even your feet is moving. <laughs> and 
my boss was ahead of me, so he went first. So you just saw him. I just saw him like basically move in front of me <laughs> while his feet was on the ground. <laughs> Did he say anything right like Christian? <laughs> yeah, he just said Christian. I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. And then boom, gone. <laughs> River wow. has taken him. That would have been so bad if. Yeah, you would have been crazy. It would have been terrible. Yeah, but so, so where did they find him? Uh, he 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 got himself out. There's no one there. Like the closest person is an hour's drive away. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> how and long did it take? How long did it take you to find him? He took about. Well, I didn't find him. He what basically happened was the river took him down for maybe a kilometer or so, and he got hit to the bank of the river and he grabbed on some roots and pulled himself out. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, but it took him a good like an hour and a half to come back. From that. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's the crazy thing. From the city, yeah. it's kind of a sheltered life. Yeah. Then trust to this sort of profession that you never expected. And this kind of crazy experience that no one really contemplates. Yeah. I mean, but you don't seem really phased. <laughs> <laughs> or you've seen so much that you know, this is not the worst. <laughs> like I asked you whether there was anything that shocked you. I'm surprised that that did not. <laughs> I think uh, nearly seeing someone Die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that must. I don't know. Something's wrong with me. <laughs> um, no, I think underlying everything is that I really love it. Yeah, and I think that kind of transcends all the shocks, if you would say, if you call it that. Um, Myself and Jeremy, we we do talk about um, a sort of existential crisis that a lot of people go through once they start working. Because, and I think we spoke uh, about this with Aaron, where when you start off with any endeavor, you're very idealistic. You have great ideas, great plans. I'm going to change the world. And when you start, a lot of times, if you're doing anything worthwhile, uh, life is going to reply very quickly, very strongly with a big no. You <laughs> yeah. know? Uh, so I wondered, have you had an experience? Have you ever, you know, started this and just realized how I mean, especially with something like this, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely occurred to me. It's become more like obvious how difficult it is. Mm. And I should have known this before. Otherwise, everyone would be studying these animals. Mm. You know, there's the reason why so few people study is not because they're not interested in it. But because people are aware that these are extremely difficult animals to follow. Um, and it just takes too many years of someone's life. <laughs> that it becomes it becomes nonsensical. Mm. I mean, it takes a person who's willing to give up the best years of his life, mm. a decade of that, and putting everything aside, you know, thoughts of marriage, relationships, family, planting yourself in a forest, mm. and just chasing these animals. Um, you must really love it to go Yeah, to go and that's why that. people like, you know, Goodall... And Charlie's Ambro Angels is yeah the Charlie's Angels. You know about Charlie's Angels? No. Let's blow your mind, bro. <laughs> so there was this sociologist right. in the UK. Um, what was it the US? Um, it might be the US actually. I think it's the US. Yeah, he was a sociologist and he had just recruited three PhD students. Right, three girls. Okay. And he wanted them to study animal behavior in the context of sociology. Okay. Okay, so he sent them to study primates. This was like the fifties mm. or sixties. I think sixties, right? So he recruited three female PhD students. One was sent to study orangutans in Indonesia, one chimpanzees in Africa, another gorillas also in Africa. Chimpanzees was Jane Goodall, 
Hmm. I can't remember the other two's names. Uh, but they're amazing women as well. One died. One died. The yeah. gorilla one died. Yeah. The lady who went to study. She was there's murdered. A, there's a movie named after her. Yeah. Uh, made about her. And the one who studied orangutans is still studying orangutans. Mm. Okay. Yeah, but she's not as just not as charismatic as Jane Goodall is, but still doing amazing work. Mm. So, Charlie's Angels is inspired by them because directly. I, yeah. yeah, kind of lah. Because yeah. you have that mean dude, okay. and then sending you out send these. The three girls. <laughs> out. So where along the way did it become spy movie? <laughs> 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 It's not the natural progression of what this should be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jane Goodall is not the classic uh, Fame <laughs> Patel. <Or> Cameron Diaz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like like you said, there's been... Like for example, Jane Goodall, even um, the person in Indonesia mm. um, um, dedicating their lives and yeah. the work is still not done. Yeah. There's so much to do. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Like you've been in Sabah for what? Two, year, two, two years? Yeah. Two years. How many... For example, your main research is Clouded Leopards, right? Yeah. I mean, the biggest funding yeah. goes towards that because yeah. it's the most unstudied as of as yeah. of yet. Yeah. How many, what's your contact like been with? Yeah, so like, I think I've seen three Clouded Leopards in the wild. That's in, pretty crazy for two years, man. Yeah, and actually to be fair, the only reason why I saw them is because we were trapping them mm. uh, to, to put these re- GPS collars on them. Um, otherwise, like, Actual sightings, like from serendipitous tracking, none. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, um, I mean, because um, Christian's Mac is here, <laughs> so sometimes he and his email is synced to the Mac. Actually, all our all yeah, our stuff is synced in a basically weird way. Basically, I have the accounts and everyone else freeloads. <laughs> <off my laughs> nice. So, like, I know when Christian is FaceTiming people. <laughs> I get his reminders sent to me. <laughs> it's a weird thing. La. Okay. Like, uh, sometimes, back in the day when we all used iPhones, someone would be FaceTiming me and then Christian would pick up. And I think the person's calling me because he's a mutual friend. <laughs> <laughs> it was really embarrassing. That's not going to work out. Well. <laughs> not gonna work so, out. But I get uh, photos because he has uh, cameras. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cameras set up. So, yeah. sometimes I just see photos pop up yeah. of like the jungle terrain. <laughs> So, and it's just like, to go through that, so it's yeah. uh, pretty crazy. And I, mean, I think you were telling me that you tracked one, you call it one uh, leopard. Cloud leopard, yeah. And the leopard ended up coming to your area? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really funny. So, we spent like months tracking this one cloud leopard. Finally found him, walked into a trap. We put a collar on him. And then we get sent the locations via satellite mm. to our computer. And I checked the data. And literally, like I think... A few weeks after we collared him, he came within meters of our research station. Mm. Within meters. And that is, I, I just went like, what the heck? Just spent months like <laughs> driving distances, <laughs> tracking 10, 20 Ks to find him. And he comes like a few meters. To our, yeah, Did you go out and like see if you No, could like see him? we get the data a bit late. Oh, so it's always okay. like a few hours after he's It's like right. so, so close by yet so far. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, so. That's fantastic. And then the latest development, the latest progression yeah. for you is that you got an award. Yeah. Uh, the Medeka Award. Yeah. So maybe you can talk us through what the Medeka Award is. Yeah. Um, uh, how did you get it? Can yeah. I apply for it? Yeah. I think I'm also contributing to the country. And what what that involved, the endowment, what, what did that entail? Yeah. Yeah. So the Medeka Award is... Well, I didn't get the Medeka Award. The Medeka Award... 
is set up to mirror the Nobel Prize, mm. but a Malaysian version. Wow, uh, wow, wow, wow. I you got the Nobel Prize? No, I prefaced <laughs> by saying I did not get a Merdeka Award. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's funded by three oil and gas companies, Petronas, Exxon and Shell. Mm. Uh, it kind of came together to make this prize and the purpose of it was to, just the same as Nobel Prize, you know, to encourage and acknowledge, acknowledge uh, excellence in science and research. And also the arts actually, they do award arts. But then I think along the way, they realized that they wanted to help younger scientists as well, who are early careers. So they set up something called the Merdeka Award Grant for international attachment. Mm. So basically, I applied for it and I got it. And what it did was it sent, it gave me uh, funding to go to a foreign institute for three months to do a short-term attachment, a research attachment. Mm. Uh, so that's where I've been for the last four months, actually, mm. uh, in Brown University in the US. <laughs> I mean, bad luck. Your timing was horrible. It was awful. What, <laughs> your first week and then... I was, I was there, I arrived like two weeks in and then COVID hit hard mm-hmm. and all the labs in the university shut down and Oof. then the uni eventually shut down as well. It was bad because your experience was diminished. But I, your work continued. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I mean, I owe it to Brown for not leaving me hanging. Mm. Like they, my supervisor made sure that I had work to do and that my learning continued despite everything closing. So yeah, I, it definitely wasn't a wasted experience. I wouldn't call it that. I think, a big chunk of you know experiencing the Ivy League experience in the US was lost mm. because I wasn't able to go to these really cool talks and events. But my work with the lab, with the research that I'm doing in particular was not diminished, I think. Mm. So you yeah. still had a very positive experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I work with uh, using genetic material. Uh, and so while I wasn't able to do the lab work of extracting DNA and sequencing the DNA from, you know, uh, genetic material, I was able to use digital genetic data. So once you got a sequence, it's already digital in the in the computer, right? Yeah. So I was able to work with that data. So maybe we can talk a little bit about this because I think this part, maybe we haven't really gone into. Mm. Yeah. You talk a lot about genetics. Yeah. And you talk a lot about conservation. Yeah. How do these two go together yeah. in very simple layman's <laughs> terms? Yeah. <laughs> so, there are there are many things we can study, but I'm just going to highlight two mm. that I'm particularly interested in. So one of the key questions of conservation is um, what are animals eating? What is their diet? Mm. And, you know, it seems like a pretty simple question, but that's also a hard one to answer. Because you have to observe them for months. Yeah, yeah. and out. some animals change their diets depending on who is there. So, which competitors Why are there? Why they get self-conscious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they get paranoid. <laughs> uh, they're not looking in the mirror and thinking... They're, scared, male, they're when, scared they're going to get fat shame. Yeah, yeah. When it comes mating season, you've got to cut it, you know, get lean. Evolutionary biology is <laughs> Okay. We'll not get into the masculinity <laughs> thing again. Yeah, my brother likes to draw small things and just make it big. I Bring out big concepts into everything. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, never mind. Yeah. So the question of what they're eating and how that varies based on season and influences from from uh, other species. The only the well, the best way I think to study it now is to collect their fecal matter. So mm. literally just look for shit everywhere, mm. collect it mm. and extract DNA from poop. Mm. 
Okay. So, say for example, I get orangutan poop, I sift through it, take DNA out of it. All the DNA material in there is either going to belong to an orangutan or what it's eaten. Mm. And so, using uh, information about what it's eaten, and if I collect enough specimens throughout the year, I can see how orangutan diets vary okay, seasonally. But why is it important to know what animals are eating? Yeah, because we need to know what an animal needs to survive and if and how our effects, human effects, are in any way affecting their needs. Whether know? they're not getting the food that they Yeah, you know, to put it simplistically, maybe an orangutan exclusively needs to eat papaya. Mm. And whatever human activity we're doing is exclusively eliminating papayas. Mm. So that there lies the problem. You said there was a second second interest. Yeah. My second interest, which is quite big, is population genetics. Mm. So this is using genetics to study how one population is changing from another. So to make it really simple, right? Um, there's a disease in among native Sabahans uh, that is caused by inbreeding. Right? It's because many of the villagers marry within themselves mm. and there's too many in marrying that a lot of people are marrying their own cousins. Right? And that leads to what's called recessive genetic diseases where you know you one person may have a tendency to carry a genetic disease, but when he marries his cousin, that probability of their child getting it is doubled. Sure. Right? That's basically what happens. Mm. So inbreeding in the medical sense is bad. Yeah. Inbreeding happens with animals too. So the more inbreeding happens the gene pool becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And and when your gene pool becomes restricted, the animal cannot adapt. Do There's animals no have a way of knowing who their kin are and not mating? I'm well, there is quite a lot of inbreeding that's happening, so maybe not. But I think it would vary from species to species, probably. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. I mean, there, there was some... I mean, some... Uh, some animals are more protective of their mates, some are not. So, like, I think yeah. there is some behavioural yeah, stuff. Yeah, social relationships differ... Like there's a whole spectrum of different sure. social relationships across the board. Definitely. From bees right up to cats. Mm. Very different. But uh, I, I'm going to speak specifically about the cats because that's what I do. Sure. Um, there is quite a high level of inbreeding and inbreeding is just bad. Uh, but there is no real way to measure this. Mm. Right? So genetics is probably the only lens we have to directly measure what our inbreeding levels like. And so I guess, I, I mean, I'm just following what you're saying and... Yeah. You're, you're trying to figure out how much of inbreeding is going on yeah. for to prevent a sort of future... Yeah, a, a, extinction. A, yeah. We, I mean, science has shown over and over again that many extinctions have happened because gene pools become too small. I see. Like diseases just hit the, the animals for no reason. Uh, like the Tasmanian devil in Australia, was get, they had, the whole species was getting cancer. <laughs> a lot of them were just dying from cancer. Okay. And they found that that recessive cancer gene was being spread to the whole population because they're all breeding together. Uh, so they had to do like bring a Tasmanian devil from another place completely outside the population and mix it in so you widen the gene pool a little bit. So that's kind of the crux of how genetics is used. Uh, but does that, doesn't that, does that raise like kind of ethical questions within a conservation community about bringing yeah. an animal from, from a different other ecology? Places, yeah, and yeah that kind sure. Of thing? Yeah, those are big questions and I think conservationists, conservationists are always balancing between the trade-offs. Like what is the benefits against the losses? Mm -hmm. um, and it, 
that trade-offs sometimes have been argued about too much that it leads to inaction and then inaction proves to be a bigger consequence than yeah. either two of those options. I, I remember reading about that. I know... Yeah, uh, that's a really good example of inaction. Mm. So there was another... That was a prime debate of should we mix these two... Maybe uh, I think for Jeremy's uh, yeah, benefit. Yeah, so the rhinos in Malaysia have gone extinct in the wild and now in captivity as well. This just okay. happened uh, a f- like a year, a year or two years ago. Yeah, it was late okay. last year. Right, yeah. it was late that, last year. That did hit the news. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Late last year, we but lost... But they could have technically done something. La. So okay. Indonesia shares kind of the same... Well, Sumat- Sumatra and uh, Kalimantan shares a very... Almost... Some argue the same species. Other argue that it's a subspecies, different subspecies. Like people just been going back and forth about whether they're the same species or not. And that argument had deterred the breeding um, initiatives. Right. Okay. So if breeding had started ten years ago, before all these animals got sick in the cap in captivity, there would still be a population in in Borneo. I see. Yeah. So, like I said, inaction sometimes proves to be proves to have a bigger consequence than any one of the prior options. Mm. So you're you're in America, you're yeah. studying genetics. Yeah. You've had this kind of diverse educational backgrounds. Yeah. You did local university, yeah. Unimas. Yeah. Um you did you've done um a type of education in that you mm. went into uh Sabah with very little experience. Yeah. You didn't study to do this. No. So there was a lot of studying uh the on field. the calf, yeah. you know, as you were going along. Yeah. And then you went to America, you go, you go to an Ivy League, yeah. and then there's a completely different style there. Yeah. So I was wondering that whether you could speak to the differences, um, you know, what is your take on education? Um, which do you prefer? Or what are your takeaways? Or, you know, whatever, actually. Yeah. So I guess, like, um, I was fortunate actually. I, I, I really like the route I took. I mean, I'm sure everyone has their own route. Mm. But I like the fact that I got a chance to experience um, the field first. Mm. You know, and and without having any prior knowledge, no biases, no prejudice, just going to the field and observing things raw as it is uh, without knowing anything. I think it gave me uh, a, a very different perspective to people who had been studying ecology and wildlife their whole lives and then coming to the field. Uh, because I observed... I I observed more naively, I guess, in a sense. Uh, and that was really good. Because when I went to America and pursued this kind of campus-driven, university-setting style education, it, it only became better. Mm. There was, you know, everything I learned just clicked so fast. Um... Uh, Everything had made sense. And so I'm a firm av- advocate of like, especially in fields like mine where where substantial practical experience is necessary. Like textbooks only teach you so much. But I honestly think that's not limited to even your field. I really think we put a bit too much emphasis. Unless, barring your uh, industry being very philosophical. That or, can't be true for accountants. <laughs> no, that's but for true. example, auditors. That yeah. Actually, it's not true though. Because with auditors, there are different programs. Uh, like for example, if you do uh, ACCA, mm. you do the examinations first, then you start working, right? So it's very theoretical and then you have internship. But you have, uh, what? there's the other course. Uh, I-C-A-E-W. I think so. Okay. And that's where you do like a, a year or something like that, a foundation. And yeah, then you're yeah. working and studying, right? Okay. And that experience is also very different because you're merging 
real life applications to the theory that you're studying. Okay. You know, so it actually in a lot of um, areas, uh, having that real life college is not really to pre- prepare you for the industry. It's more for supposedly lah, a time for you to mature a little bit. You know, widen your experiences, meet new people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It doesn't really like law school never prepared me for <laughs> for practice. You know, in fact, doing my paralegaling helped me. Yeah. You know, that was more for me to be. I mean, I've way, I have so much further to go. But the only reason I'm at the level I am now is not because of what I studied in law school, mm. but it's because of all my experiences as a paralegal, mm. or as a, you know, my privilege as an associate. Yeah. So, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. Uh, but… Then, that begs the question, like, why, why universities exist? Or rather, why do we all pay so much uh, attention and kind of pressure so many people to enter universities. Engineering has a very specific kind of foundation to it because to be able to get to the advanced stuff at the practical, you need to understand the foundation. Mm. The reason you do fluid mechanics 1, 2, and 3 mm. is because to get to 3 where the application actually hits, mm. you needed to understand 1 and 2. Yeah. So that that's very specific to engineering. You can't just go build stuff. Let, let it... <laughs> oh, you <laughs> Da Vinci and... <laughs> <laughs> <Michael> Imbal, <Angelo. laughs> do it a thousand times. They never figured out what's friction. It just went away. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that could work. But you never... like. I think it was the same with coding. You could do coding, you could troubleshoot it and never understand why it worked. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's yeah. one way to go about your problem solving. Yeah. But that's not recommended. <laughs> because you'll never solve it in a different scenario again. You yeah. will just troubleshoot it until it works again. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I mean, it's it, different. When you um, syllabize, syllab- make, sy- make into a syllabus. Yeah. Uh, a particular area of study. Yeah. It helps onboard people. Yeah. It's easier. Like, it's, it's more digestible. Yeah. I think for you going to the wild and experiencing thing, yeah. experiencing things, you can't deliver that experience certainly yeah. or in a certain way to every single person. Mm. Yeah. But when you put it in a university format, everybody comes in; they're consuming the same thing, yeah. and so the outcome is more manufactured, la. Yeah. And so you can, you know, put tests and you know qualify people mm-hmm. and yeah. whatever. Right. But you know, I kind of I I've been reading lots of like American history and. Mm kind of renaissance history, that era. And the uh, university was basically, you have, you, you choose a career after you finish your schooling or whatever, basic schooling, and you then become a... Apprentice. Apprentice. Yeah. And you have a master. Sure. And depending what your craft is, it could be printing, it could be law, it could be woodwork, carpentry, carpentry yeah. whatever it is. You basically work in the profession mm. and this master is responsible for training you. And... You know, when I, when I came across those systems, I mean, it seems a bit naive to now say like, oh, actually, in hindsight, that seems like a better thing to do because I'm sure there are many reasons why we moved on from it. Mm. But I think the one benefit or like the strongest appeal to me about that is that you kind of curate your learning experience based on what you're experiencing at the time. Sure. Um, because, you know, even more so now, like for, for example, if you wanted to learn to code, of course, learning all of it at one go would seem like much for anyone to do. Mm. But had you been put into a situation that required you to code, you then l- kind of learn bits of it because everything's available online, right? Yep. You learn what's relevant to what you need to solve Correct. and yeah. then learn it thoroughly and then solve the problem and then move on to your next problem. And yeah. you know, I, I tend towards those kind of learning experiences. Yeah. 
Because you're not learning for the sake of learning. Yeah, you're prob- exactly. You're just solving something. And yeah. and so, having a textbook in front of you and being given a problem yeah. and you playing around with it where versus just reading a book. Yeah. You know, it's very it's a very different experience. I mean, of course, you have your FYPs and your assignments which theoretically is supposed to address that that problem. But it's still... I mean, because this addresses the reason why, you know, after the subject is done, everything just disappears. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> Unless you've had to build something, which some engineers have had to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think just traveling through the public university experience, I've encountered a bulk of my classmates who kind of took on the course because it was just thrown at them mm-hmm. and then just diligently memorized and took on the knowledge without exactly knowing why they were doing it. Mm. And finding later that when they tried to get jobs, they just didn't know what to do. They weren't getting hired. They didn't know what to say. They didn't have any relevant experience. Right. And they go through this vicious cycle all over again. Mm. And I, to some extent, I feel they were they are at the same place as they were when before they started, they started university. Mm. Uh, and it's a really sad thing to see. So, do you do you have a different experience with American university like Brown? Is yeah. there a difference? Well, Brown's an Ivy League, so I think in that it, it's earned its right because it is probably one of the most engaging communities you can live in. Um, you know, it's everything. I attended a talk, all right, and you guys would love it because the title was basically the history of forged documents. <laughs> all right, mm. so. You know, it's just these niches that are all over the place. Mm. So whatever your curiosity may be, wherever your interests may lie, you will find Mm. a small group of people who have an expertise and crazy interest in it Mm. and who take it far, right? This forged document talk was basically about this guy who had learned the art of debunking forged documents. Okay. Basically by, you know, understanding how ink has developed through the years how people's handwriting styles have changed through the years, printing styles through the years, and debunking whether a document is forged or a, a real document. Um, yeah, so I think in that sense, Americans have done an extremely good job at integrating life experiences and people's interests with the education. So everything that a person does in school should directly relate to what they're interested in. Nice, nice. And you didn't, I, I guess you didn't find that in Unimas very much, right? The culture was No, I think, different. I think the Malaysian system in general, right from high school, primary school, is that there is a syllabus you study and you, you do well in it and hopefully with the A's, you convince someone that you're smart and, <laughs> and capable of doing something. I mean, you, you did have a good experience in Unimas, but is it that the experience was more, ex- like more of the experiences that you had yeah. in Unimas was beneficial? I think I had an unfair advantage. You know, coming from KL, and there weren't many people from KL, hmm. I had an upper hand in already knowing what was out there, already knowing what employers would be looking for in people, what traits would earn me money and what wouldn't. Hmm. Um, so I could hone into those strengths and develop them while in uni. Whereas for most people, they had just been told like, oh, just do well. Just, mm. you know, do well in your subjects, make sure you study hard, learn it well, and that will be enough. But I had the benefit of having been told much earlier that your A's are only going to take you so far. So, it was unfair, mm. uh, my advantage. And I think... A lot of people are not... Are people not told that... I, 
It appears not. So it depends. I mean, Monash more. Okay, you know, Monash has the luxury of being an Australian-based university, but mm. there is a lot more of a conscious effort. Again, going to speak from an engineer's perspective, mm. uh, they're responding to industry needs. So I'm not yeah. sure about your yeah. course, like how much they interact with industry, but like, you know, engineers have like the stereotype of being like, you know, not soft-spoken, but like reserved. They don't talk, just yeah. buried in their books. So there've been a lot more efforts to try and get people to like hone their soft skills. And so there were subjects that graded you on your ability to speak and present that try to push people in that direction. I'm not sure if that's happening in public unis. I mean, I can speak about BAC, Brickfields Asia College. Oh, uh, mighty Brickfields Asia <laughs> They should sponsor you. Fun fact, before my brother had gone to BAC, my mother had initially advertised it to him as Raja Singham's College. Yeah, man. <laughs> because at that point, I was like, okay, I want to do law. Then my mom was like, one morning, I still remember when she told me, it was like early before we had left for school. She's like, my friend. Yeah, there's a college, Raja Singham's College. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to a college named Raja Singham's College. Okay, I don't know what college is that. I don't care if it's a triple-story house or whether it's a five, I don't know, block building, okay? I'm not going to a college named Raja Singham's College. <laughs> He'd be the tyrant of that college. <laughs> well, but, in all... In all trueness, it is Raja Singham's college. Yeah. <laughs> BAC is. is a front. It is, it is actually Raja Singham's college. No, they have a crazy success story because they went from five people owning a small block. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They went from uh, a small... It's funny. We went we from... Don't address it. Don't yeah, address we went it. Address. <laughs> We went from... Uh, uh, they went from five people owning a block, right, in uh, Brickfields to... Opening a second building next door. I mean, acquiring a second building. Getting a third building down the road in Brickfields. To then... Uh, again, our five people just own this company. Eh? Right? Going public. Going public listed. They were public listed? Yes. Shit. That's how they got the money to do the PJ campus. Damn, okay. That's a huge development. Hmm. Right? Buying over IACT. <laughs> Yo, it is just... It's one of the great... Malaysian, to me, like, one of the great Malaysian success stories of our time, our generation. Five people, you know, like, becoming uh, such a big institution. But, you know, I was from, B from BAC, from A-levels, all the way up to doing my CLP. Mm. And to give credence to them, they gave an amazing platform for people to uplift themselves from the, their stations in life. Because doing a law degree is a very beneficial degree. Mm. Right? It opens a lot of avenues for you. And the way they structured their course was such that it was so tailor-made to you passing exams. <laughs> we, they, they had so many people who were like uh, single mothers mm. uh, who were like, for example, uh, had a full-time job coming in for part-time classes. There was air stewardess, right? Doing part-time classes. Wow. Graduating and then uh, with a law degree going on to uh, do CLP and becoming a lawyer. Totally, uh, you know, uplifting themselves. So that's the great thing about Brickfields. Bad thing about Brickfields is the content <laughs> of what they deliver. There's a story we used to joke about. La. Like people say you should never spoon feed, right? But <laughs> we'll say BAC takes it one step further, they breastfeed. Imagery <laughs> 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 doesn't help. <laughs> but okay, like now you're employed. Yeah. Do your employers think this way, this way as well? Like, is no. there a negative impression? No, no, no. The reason why is because so many people go to... Like, my A-levels class was 
200 people. Yeah. And that's one class. That year had three classes. So you have 600 people going for A-levels, which waters down for your degree, which waters down for your CLP. And you have to get through your CLP, which is a big um, hurdle. That filtering process uh, helps in giving you good candidates in the market. Some lousy people get out there as well, but a lot of good candidates go out as well. But the problem is the skills and the level of level of maturity in the thought process in terms of the law is very, very shallow. Because yeah. basically, basically, super affordable, super efficient, <laughs> you know, super fast, you know. It's the Air Asia Law School. <laughs> yeah. The McDonald's Law School. <laughs> it's basically a, like a factory churning out grads, yeah. you know. And they're giving the market what it wants, I suppose. But um, in terms of quality, like again, like the McDonald's effect, you know, it's attractive, it's cheap, it's fast. But whether it's good for health in the long run, yeah. very, very questionable. I think I know like multiple people who have jumped on the BAC bandwagon just because they heard it was like a three-year thing. Mm. And it was quick, uh, the right? Speed, yeah. The speed. I think that's the most exciting you, thing about do you, it. Do you know how they do that speed? No. Have I actually, I don't think you've, I've actually told you. No. Okay, A-levels, you have three to four subjects, right? Yeah. So, you just imagine someone pitching this idea in BAC. So, you got your AS for like one year and then your A2 for another year. Then like, actually, there's another way. Drop, because for you to get through your A-levels, you need to pass minimum two subjects. Just to do. Just do two subjects, but do it in one year. So, you do half. So, Only you half year like A-levels. So, you just, basically, your first year, you do both your AS and A2. Ah. And you only do two subjects. But of course, yeah. if you fail, even one cannot. Lah. Yeah. But barring that, you, you should be fine. And a lot of yeah. people, passing is not that difficult. Lah. But can you imagine someone pitching that idea? Or oh, we can actually make it faster. Yeah. You know, to <laughs> cut off one year, yeah. cut off uh, two subjects, yeah. just do the bare minimum and we compress it for you. Yeah. That's pretty crazy, man. It's intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, f- from a business perspective, yes. Yeah. From a personal de- de- development perspective, probably not. But the thing is, because it's so fast, affordable, etc., I've known lots of people who've done it and then realized, like, you know, they don't want to be lawyers. Ah. So they then take other degrees or professional certifications. So then they then become like accountants with a law degree or engineers mm. with a law degree, <laughs> doctors with a law degree. Yeah. That's a pretty exciting combination, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I just think that BAC has a place in the market. I'm hoping that other colleges like Taylor's Hub, I mean, they are giving out good uh, quality content in terms of their tuition. I hope that they market themselves better and that people will be willing. I'm sure there are people who will be willing to pay for a particular type of experience. Yeah. So I'm just hoping that 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 also rises along with BAC. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so another thing we wanted to talk to you about, because like in the beginning you of this conversation, you were talking about some of the sacrifices that you've had to make. Yeah. Um, you've had to, you know, like basically you're a very family oriented person. Mm-hmm. Um so going to Sabah, you know, that definitely has not been easy for you because you're basically isolating yourself. And you're basically a typical extrovert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you you live off people. I remember the first the first I think holiday I took and came back home. Uh, I think I immediately called a couple of people to come over to the house. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's crazy. You know what he did? He came back in December, right? He came back. 
He called everybody to come to the house, took out Christmas decorations, come let's decorate the house. He, <laughs> and he somehow conned these people to decorate our house. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had our entire house decorated for Christmas in a day. Yeah. Well, in a night actually. And I don't know how... To, Very Everyone nice. did it for free. No one got paid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that con happened. It was like probably how I con people to do this podcast <laughs> <laughs> on the same level. <laughs> like, <laughs> at the very least, I like to think that that's actually yeah. It was kind of like you know we're gonna have great conversation. Let's just have Christmas decorations in the mix as well. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Let's be productive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the free labor is here. <laughs> <laughs> and another aspect is. Is also you have. I mean, you've been dating. Yeah. You started dating when it's been a while now. How many yeah. years is it? It's been five years. And the funny thing is, I remember you. Uh, I think you WhatsApp me or called me and told me that you started dating this girl. Yeah. You know, you had met her uh, through church. Yeah. Uh, you were serving together, and then you know, after a few, I think it was just a few months, and yeah, uh, you know, and you, after getting close to her, that you all decided to start dating. Yeah. But then after a few, after when you got together. I think end of the year or something like that, she moves to America. A year later. A year later. A yeah. year later, she goes to America yeah. to continue her studies and you yeah. you start this epic <laughs> long-distance relationship. Journey that's taken, it's <laughs> <is> honestly <laughs> taking much longer than I expected it to. Yeah. yeah. And and it gets even more complicated. So, you're, you know, doing this LDR with her while you're in Unimas. Yeah. Then you go to... Uh, Sabah yeah. and you're still doing this long distance yeah. and I guess that's another complication because she's very driven you are very driven yeah. and you figuring how to proceed yeah. she moving forward so so it's quite complicated lah. Yeah, I think what's made it most complicated is the fact that we're both interested in the same things which is um, academia we both enjoy research we both enjoy the campus environment and I mean Jeremy you've had experiences with scholarships and stuff you go yeah. where the scholarships lead you yeah. or where the money takes you uh, and you don't always have a choice. Mm. So, with both of us pursuing these things, it is invariably pulling us in different directions, right? Uh, and that is a sad fact of reality that we have to try and juggle. Mm. Um, so, I've, I've applied to a number of universities and she's currently pursuing a master's in another university. So, down the horizon, there's going to be a bit more of LDR for mm. us. Despite Brenda, already, we love you. We support you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her name is Brenda. Uh, despite it already taking five years. So, yeah, I think on the note of sacrifice, it, it definitely hits me every now and then. You know, but I think as with any career, those questions about, you know, should I be doing this? And is all this sacrifice worth it? I think those questions are extremely important for anyone. And I'm kind of appreciative that I do have this big sacrifice because at least I know it's not coming easy. I'm not choosing this path because it's the most convenient one mm. or it's the one I'm enjoying the most. There are pains in it. You're way mature than me. <laughs> I'll be like screaming like, why God? Why? Do you hate me? <laughs> what have I done to you? <laughs> Christian will be doing that in the jungle. <laughs> and no I'm one will self. listen. <laughs> By the way, guys, I must say, one thing you must you must experience once in your life yeah. is to just walk around the jungle like completely naked. Oh. Butt naked. Yeah. Just not worry. Fantastic. You just go to shower and then like, oh, I forgot my towel. Doesn't matter. Open the door, walk out. 
I'll take a walk la, later. <laughs> we will get some police reports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do have a jungle. <laughs> oh man. You know that this area, these three roads is weird. Just because the jungle is there. Sometimes we're walking, you can hear like wild boars. Oh, yeah, yeah you told had, me before. Yeah, yeah, we've had some wild boars here. And then there's a huge uh, monitor lizard. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Like really, like I'm talking like from like, okay, I can't, for, I don't like know. Like six to, feet, that's about six feet. Yeah, it's, like, it's huge. And it always crosses one particular area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a horrible story about monitor, monitor lizard. So, my boss and I was driving on the road mm. and we see a Who almost died this time. No, no, this time we were safe. Mm. But this is a story about death. Oh, wow. Um, we see a monitor lizard that's about to die. So it's been run over by a car. This happens a lot, roadkill. Um, and so we, we carry a bunch of parangs at the back of the car, right? And he says, Christian, you got to cut off the... Just, just kill it. You know, just end the life fast because it's half dead. Mm. So I find this parang at the back of the car and I just go to the road and I whack its head. Just try to cut off top of the whole head. And the damn parang is blunt. Oh it's so blunt. Oh. It's just I'm just smashing the head over and over again. I'm like, oh dear. it's not coming off. And it was the worst feeling ever because it, it was terrible. So my boss looks at it, looks at me. And says, okay, never mind. Come back. And he just drives over the thing like five times. Oh, the, what Wait, the why does it, does it require five times? Yeah. Honestly, oh. it's really hard to sever a head of a monitor What lizard. the heck? <laughs> but… At that point, it would have been more humane to leave it be no, and let no, it die no, slowly. No, it, no it, the blood would have oozed out in like hours. You would have had a slow, they would know painful better. death. <laughs> they would know better. No, I, we've had these ethical discussions. Like if you see a broken… Uh, a, a deer with a broken sure, leg, yeah, for yeah. example. Yeah. Like, yeah, it can go out in the wild. It's going to die. Quality of life yeah. and all that. So, you are obliged to kill it. Yeah. So, uh, going back to the LDR. Something <laughs> 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 more fun topic. Se- segues, no, it segues quite well to LDR. <laughs> should we, well, should you take of, a parang? <laughs> on the topic of death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what good. is death but not love? <laughs> oh, love. <laughs> Lies brief candle. <laughs> Sure, that's the one. <laughs> I don't remember. That was not a poem. <laughs> <laughs> Life's brief candle was what? Life's brief candle is that tomorrow, Macbeth. tomorrow, and tomorrow. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, but it's funny because like me and Jeremy, we are like you know we're pretty out of about in KL. You know, we are fishing. What we, that means? We are fishing the sea. We are looking for those high and We are looking for those fishes. Riding the, the high tide. is bubbling to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy is doing. Jeremy is doing a lot better than me, like. You know. Anyone on Tinder yet? He, yes. No, I'm not. Jeremy, I know there's you? a new app now. Like a lot there's of a lot, like Coffee Meets Bagel. Oh, Coffee uh, Meets Bagel. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. That's a Malaysian yeah. thing. Bumble. Ah, Suppo- Bumble. Yeah, that's the one I've heard of. Yeah, no, Bumble new, gives bro. the power to the f- woman Girl, to decide. Yeah. yeah. No, but Jeremy doesn't. He, he's super popular, so he's he doesn't need it. No, of course, we had Sharon who came here. Jeremy, the moment Sharon came, Jeremy took out his paper. He was ready to, you know, sign Just an write autograph. Pass <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? a note. <laughs> this mythology I, is going to be building. <laughs> I, no, but literally, over the week, I had a friend texted me. Can you introduce me to Jeremy? I think we're going to be best friends. <laughs> I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> then he updated his Facebook uh, profile picture. Oh, blew up. Wow. <laughs> But anyway, my point, my, my, my point is like, we are out here kind of like, you know, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. And you <laughs> seem to have managed to last this yeah. span of time. And I think LDR, for a lot of people I've spoken to, LDR is something that's extremely difficult. Yeah. Right? It's pretty... Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I think I got lucky that I didn't have to cast my nets very high or low. Uh-huh. And I just... Um, I guess I found someone who just fits so well mm. and there was no more need to mm. look anymore. And so it was just a matter of how are we going to like sustain it for long enough that we get through all these life stuff mm. before eventually settling down. Mm. And I think that's always, that's the only question that we've had to ask. Mm. So LDR, I think Honestly, it's been easy. It's not been it's, it's not been hard, and I think that probably has to do with the fact that we're both. You have a common goal, probably. I think we're both really occupied with what we do. Uh-huh. Like my job absorbs me a hundred percent. You know, I live where I work. It, it's it's my life. There's no escaping it. I I have no like, oh today's family day or. I have no Sundays. You know, I, I wake up and it's where I work. Mm. But do you guys ever have to negotiate certain things like time spent together or communication? Or yeah, I guess we've decided those things. A while back. Because you've been yeah, doing it for so on. long. Yeah, it's become, it's become quite quite a standard routine. Mm. Like, I think communication is big for the two of us. And I think every LDR couple should should like work hard at building like good communication. I do remember Brenda texting me uh, when you were coming back. Uh, no, but she texted me with something r- different. I can't remember what now. Yeah. But then I remember telling her like, oh, I know this one's going to be a tough one. But anyway, it's just a drop in the ocean in, in the you know long run. Yeah. <clears throat> and, but as I, after I said that, I was like, that, you know, it doesn't help at all. <laughs> That's one long drop. <laughs> and I just like realized it's quite tough lah, you know. It's quite yeah. sad. And because she was in America, so you spent time with her dad. So even more that separation later on. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm holding on to the grateful fact that that I have a, a companion, mm. and I and I'm seeing so in so many places that a lot of people don't have a best friend or you know someone who understands you completely. And I think that in today's world, that is a a gift. Mm. Definitely, and it's made my life better and. I think that benefit alone of you know just having someone who understands you very well, who you can talk to, bounce ideas off, who just understands a lot of what you are about without having to explain too much is a greater benefit than any difficulty that LDR poses. So it definitely helped you through adjusting to your work. Yeah, and all yeah, that. for sure. Like that constant. I think it's akin to like journaling, you know, like mm. you know, when you journal you just internalize your thoughts and you bring it out and it helps you process it's kind of like that mm. in a in a weird way <laughs> in a very utilitarian kind of way yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was thinking that <laughs> but you know that is like a, a very big benefit for me mm. that I see you know so it makes all the other sacrifices worth it mm. um, yeah so like you know Jeremy being known as a player Casanova of our times. Yeah, I've seen him down the streets. Moving Which around. <laughs> we, see, we see the way you move, Jeremy. Alright. So do you have any advice? Uh, try and convince him to like leave this this hedonistic... Um. <laughs> Roche is asking what he's projecting like, really hard. He's asking for himself. Really. You've heard, you heard of uh, my, life brother's, 
We've heard of the life of... ashamed to admit of his <laughs> lifestyle choices. We've heard, we've heard of the life of Dorian Gray. Have you heard of the life of Jeremy Lim? <laughs> dull as balls. Can you, can you impart some you know, advice to Jeremy on changing his ways and accepting love? Jeremy, be you, man. Just be you. That's been me and this is where, this ride, is where we're at. Ride the wave high and low. Ride it. I wouldn't know how to interpret that. I wouldn't. Yeah, so actually we can wrap up. Any final thoughts? Um, no, this has been fun. I mean, I think um, on the last note, I'd just like to add that I really like speaking to people who share my interests. Mm. Uh, especially Malaysia, Malaysians. Mm. I've, I've come across like many people who are abroad and who don't know how to integrate back in Malaysia mm. and how to find their way in this career, mm. you know, conservation and wildlife work and that kind of thing. So yeah, if anyone's listening to this and you know someone who's mm. keen to work in the area, I'd be happy to chat. And we'll definitely be we're trying to look at getting more uh, guests on to talk about, again, more, more diverse um, choices, their, their passions, and yeah, all that. yeah, yeah. But maybe you can speak a bit about like um, what advice you would give to people who are sort of inclined to it. Like, where would they get more of it to realize to find out whether it's yeah. what they want to do with their lives? Because some yeah. people like can have like a mild inclination, yeah, and you know go a bit deeper and find out it's not yeah. their thing. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, like this isn't something you can read about. Mm. Um, one because there aren't many platforms out there to read about, <laughs> read it from. And two, because it's just so different when you see it on paper. Mm. So I would encourage anyone who has any kind of inclination to this to you know to go out in the field, mm. find a research project that's that's somewhere in the forest if that's what you like, or working with an animal that you like, mm. and just go work with them. Like do an internship if you have to, unpaid or yeah. with just meals or with some dodgy. <laughs> A, a lot of our college kids don't uh, take advantage of internships well yeah. enough, I think. Yeah. Mm. And actually, if you're not too sure about what career to take, I actually think there's no harm in not starting your college right your away. College right away. Yeah. Go yeah. work somewhere. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, that I would absolutely ask. I mean, that was advice given to me. Mm. Before I took this on, I, I remember speaking to like other conservationists, older guys. And say like, yo, I really want to make a change. What group can I join? I really want to do something big for mm. the environment. It was really vague, idealistic kind of mm. speech. And honestly, it annoyed the guy I was speaking to. Because <laughs> like, you are just coming out of university. I've been doing this for like 40 years and I've barely made the change that I want to make. Yeah. So he just told me like, you know, you got to give all this up, this idealistic thinking and go work in the field. Mm. Um, and that is the advice I would give to anyone. Mm. Jeremy, any closing remarks? Any thoughts? Not really. That was great. All right. And we... Oh, wait. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I did not really come anywhere. Well, he's just going I thank you for <laughs> Thank you for walking downstairs from your room. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for bo- uh, pinjamming us your camera. Oh, yes. Yes. Some <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate you. And uh, we hope that you come again soon for yeah. maybe more updates. It'll be fun. When are you going back to... Sabah? Like in two weeks maybe. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And we are done.